We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Episode 312 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Wednesday, May 11th, 2022. It is a Capitals game day. Massive game for the Caps on Wednesday night at the Florida Panthers for Game 5 in a first-round series in the Stanley Cup playoffs. The series is tied at 2. Know this, entering The 2022 Stanley Cup playoffs, teams that win game fives in best of seven series tied at two had an all-time series record of 219 and 58. Think about that, 219 and 58. The game five winner in a best of seven Stanley Cup playoff series that is tied at two goes on to win the series 79% of the time. Whoever wins Caps-Panthers Game 5 on Wednesday night will have a major edge in winning the series. Big spot for the Caps on Wednesday night. Hello and welcome to this Wednesday installment of the Al Galdi Podcast. You know, I owe you another thank you. Uh, This podcast, this oh-so-humble podcast endeavor... This grassroots militia-like revolution (laughs) that you and I are in the midst of on Tuesday was up to being number 26 in the country on Apple Podcasts in the U.S. football category. Number 26. You know, the category of U.S. football podcasts is ultra-competitive. Lots of big names. Lots of big machers, okay? Uh, lots of major big money companies and personalities. But this podcast, the Al Galdi podcast, number 26 in the country. Uh, I have you to thank for that. So thank you for listening and downloading and subscribing and giving the five-star ratings and writing the reviews. Uh, All of it is very much appreciated. And so coming up next segment, I have a special topic and a special guest regarding the Commanders. I will welcome on Tage Seth of Pro Football Focus. Uh, Tage Seth has developed PFF's wins over 
expected coaching. Wins over expected coaching is an innovative, high-level way of evaluating NFL head coaches. If I ask you, has Ron Rivera done a good or bad job over his two seasons as Washington head coach, you surely have an opinion. And your opinion isn't necessarily wrong, but what about putting that question of, has Ron Rivera done a good or bad job over his two seasons as Washington head coach through the test of an objective methodology? You know, what about finding an actual quantitative answer to that question? What Tage has come up with really is something. What an NFL team given its roster and injuries, should do, and then what the team actually does. How is Ron Rivera truly doing as Washington head coach? A deep dive on that topic and more is coming up next segment. Uh, Also on the show, talk Nationals. Believe it or not, Patrick Corbin on Tuesday night was good for a third consecutive start. Uh, The problem was that the Nats defense, the Nats base running, and the Nats batting were not good. And so the Nats lost, a 4-2 loss to the New York Mets at Nationals Park. I'll also talk Orioles on the show. Uh, the O's on Tuesday night got not just another good outing from a starting pitcher. The O's on Tuesday night got a great outing from their starting pitcher. Kyle Bradish, in just his third Major League start, was outstanding. Two runs in seven innings, 11 strikeouts versus no walks. Uh, this in a 5-3 win at the St. Louis Cardinals. I tell you, what is happening with the Orioles starting pitching right now really is stunning and really is encouraging. And what Kyle Bradish did on Tuesday night was particularly encouraging. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I've been getting a lot of feedback on the Caps. Tweet from Andy Taylor on the Caps 3-2 overtime loss to the Panthers at Capital One Arena in Game 4 on Monday night. Writes Andy, forever known as the Hathawide game. Uh, Great call, Andy. If that attempt by Garnett Hathaway at an empty net goal is successful, Caps have a 3-1 lead in the game, almost certainly wind up with a 3-1 lead in the series. A lot would be different right now. Uh, I really hope that we do not look back upon game four as the turning point in this series. Because while the Caps have done a lot of things well in this series, there's also an argument to be made that something like the Caps being 13 for 13 on the penalty kill isn't going to last. That it's only a matter of time until the ultra-potent Panthers uh, start scoring on their power plays. And if that happens then the Caps could be in trouble. I mean, the Caps have dominated this series from a special team standpoint so far. 13 for 13 on the penalty kill, 5 for 17 on the power play, and yet the Caps aren't leading the series. The series is tied at two. Think about that. A tweet from Jay Warner writes, Jay Warner, criticizing Alex Ovechkin seems to be off limits for DMV sports media, but more needs to be said about the greatest goal scorer having zero career playoff overtime goals. Playoff overtime is highest pressure situation in hockey, and Ovi has never come through in those moments. Uh, Thank you for the tweet, Jay Warner. Uh, I would not say that criticizing Alex Ovechkin is off limits for DMV sports media. Ovi has taken a pounding from some people for uh, not being more anti-Vladimir Putin off Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But if you're just talking about hockey criticism of Ovechkin, uh, no, he doesn't get a lot of criticism. And in my opinion, he shouldn't get a lot of criticism. 
I mean, would it be nice if Ovechkin had some playoff overtime goals on his resume? Yes. But if you're going to bring up Ovechkin having never scored a playoff overtime goal, then you also need to acknowledge what else he has done in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Uh, Ovechkin in his NHL career now has played in 145 postseason games. He, over those 145 postseason games, has 140 points. So Ovechkin has been about a point-per-game producer in the Stanley Cup playoffs. 145 games, 140 points. The 140 points are comprised of 72 goals and 68 assists. Those numbers work out to an 82-game average of 41 goals and 38 assists. We say 82 games because, right, an NHL regular season is 82 games. A player who has 41 goals and 38 assists in a regular season is considered to be a very good player. Ovechkin in the equivalent of a regular season in the Stanley Cup playoffs, which of course is much harder than the regular season, is averaging 41 goals and 38 assists. I'm not telling you that Alex Ovechkin has been perfect in the Stanley Cup playoffs. He has had some bad games. He has had some disappointing series, but Ovechkin's overall body of postseason work has been very good. And this narrative that he has not been a good postseason player is something that I have spoken out against for years, even before the Caps won the Stanley Cup in 2018. The narrative was never fair, okay? The narrative was fake news. And remember, it was Ovechkin who won the Conn Smythe Trophy as MVP for the 2018 Stanley Cup playoffs, even though you very well could have given the Conn Smythe that year to Evgeny Kuznetsov or even Brayden Holtby. Uh, Well, the Alex Ovechkin of Washington, D.C. area real estate agents is Kellen Hunt. Uh, If you are on the hunt for a new home in the D.C. area, you gotta get with Kellen Hunt. Visit closeitwithkell.com. That's closeitwithkell, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs and make sure that you tell Kell that Al Galdi sent you. Uh, The D.C. area is a great area, as we all know, but that also means that buying a home in the D.C. area is competitive. Uh, Here are some DMV real estate analytics for you real quick. Contract ratios compare the total number of homes under contract in a given period to the overall number of active listings. A higher ratio points to an increase in contracts compared to supply. The number one contract ratio in the D.C. area in March was that of Kensington, Maryland, 2.3, which means that in Kensington, there were 2.3 listings under contract for every listing that was active. Uh, We had similar situations in Delray, in Alexandria, Virginia, and in American University Park in Washington, D.C. Bottom line, homes in the D.C. area are going under contract quickly after those homes are listed. If you're wanting to buy a home in the D.C. area, you need a savvy realtor to ensure that your offer is the offer that wins. This is where Kellen Hunt comes in. Kellen Hunt understands the market. He is here for you to listen to what you want, no matter your situation in life. Whether you're a first-time buyer looking for guidance, or you have a young family looking for a bigger home, or you're ready to retire, and or are looking to downsize, Kellen Hunt can help you. Kellen Hunt is a real estate agent for real people, and Kellen Hunt is willing to put a portion of his commission back in your pocket. Yes, you, the buyer, get a piece of the action. Kellen Hunt knows what buyers like you are facing, and he wants to help. So visit closeitwithkell.com. 
KellyWilliams.com. That's Close It With Kell, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs and make sure that you tell Kell that Al Galdi sends you. You have nothing to lose. See what Kellen Hunt can do for you. Visit CloseItWithKell.com. Book your introductory call with Kellen Hunt at CloseItWithKell.com. If you are trying to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, you will do well by going with Kell. Visit CloseItWithKell.com and tell Kell that Al Galdi sent you. Well, the 2022 NFL season will be the third season for Ron Rivera, his head coach of the team, now known as the Commanders. Uh, We all have our opinions on the job that Ron has done as Washington head coach, but what about an objective, emotionless, scientific evaluation of the job that Ron has done as Washington head coach? Could it be that such an evaluation of Ron as Washington head coach would reveal him to be much better or maybe much worse than we realize. Well, I'm very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast a special guest, Tage Seth of Pro Football Focus. Uh, You can follow Tage on Twitter at T-E-J-F-B Analytics. Tage has developed PFF's wins over expected coaching, which is a groundbreaking way of evaluating NFL head coaches. Tage, it's nice to have you on the podcast. How are you? Great. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm, I'm really excited to be here and to talk about some Washington football and everything. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. So for the uninitiated wins over expected coaching, uh, that is what exactly? So, so wins over expected coaching is a way to evaluate coaches by adjusting for the talent on their roster. And so the inspiration came from my friend Parker Fleming, who's uh, at StatsOR on Twitter. And he created a similar metric for college football coaches, where he kind of developed a method to see the direction an average coach would take a college football program and then would look at what the coach actually did with that program and kind of compare the difference in wins there. And it works out really nicely in college football because the college football head coach controls both, you know, their roster through recruiting and all the other head coaching things like player development and in-game management. But in the NFL, it's a little bit tougher because, you don't know how much the coach actually controls their roster, right? Like you have a coach like Bill Belichick who has full control over his roster, at least it seems to us, or you have some other coaches who kind of leave it up to the front office to control their roster and everything. So for the purpose of wins over expected coaching at the pro level, we just had to assume that the coach was you know, just given the talent on their roster and how well were they able to do with that talent, um, you know, with, with ex, you know, expected wins based on their PFF grades and stuff. Yeah, and I guess that you could say that if the head coach does have major say-so in his team's player personnel, Pro Football Focus's wins over expected coaching is an evaluation of how that head coach is doing as a head coach and does not take into consideration his role in player personnel. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's basically like you're evaluating the chef based on, you know, how well they're cooking and not how well they bought the groceries. 
Yeah, and I think that that makes total sense. When it comes to the methodology that you made usage of for Pro Football Focus's wins over expected coaching, what are the components of wins over expected coaching? Yeah, so it takes the PFF facet grades that evaluate how each position group did in each season, and it creates a model that predicts how many wins an average coach would get with that roster. And so you can kind of see the different... Uh, position tiers um, kind of broken down. So like the, the, the position groups that really strongly correlate with winning are like passing. So like how well the quarterbacks did that year for that team, um, their coverage grade, receiving grade and passing grade. And that's like what I like to call tier one. And then the tier two grades that correlate pretty well with winning, but not as strongly as the ones I just mentioned are pass blocking, run blocking and running And then the tier three is run defense and tackling. So those are grades that still have a positive correlation with, you know, how well a team will do in a season, but they don't do as well with predicting that. So you can kind of combine all of those grades into a model and it spits out a number of how many wins that it would expect a coach to get based on all of those things. Interesting. So tackling does not correlate with winning in the NFL as much as we might think. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's more of just, a fact of all these other things just being really, really important, like, you know, quarterback and receiving and stuff like that. There's still some correlation there, but, you know, it just isn't as much as, as we're used to. All right. Uh, are injuries factored into Pro Football Focus's wins over expected coaching? Yes. So since, since it's the position group based on the whole season, it'll evaluate the whole, um, the whole position based on how well they do with, with injuries and, and different stuff like that. Okay, and how exactly do you quantify injuries for an NFL team? Yeah, we have our, we have our own um, injury metric at Pro Football Focus called War Adjusted Injuries Lost. And so the interesting thing about Washington last year was they were the fourth most injured team in the league, right? You lose Ryan Fitzpatrick at the beginning of the year, and he was worth about, you know, one and a half wins above replacement at the quarterback level. And then you also lose Chase Young and, you know, have the typical injuries that teams see. So behind the Ravens, Saints, and Browns last year, Washington had the, the fourth most injuries in the league. All right, so that brings us to Ron Rivera, and Ron is the main reason that I wanted to have you on the podcast here to figure out, okay, exactly how good of a job is Ron doing as Washington head coach. So Pro Football Focus's wins over expected coaching tells us what about the job that Ron did as Washington head coach in the 2021 season? Yeah, so so it reveals to us that Washington had a roster last year that an average coach would have won 6.9 games with, and then Ron Rivera ended up winning seven. So he did basically exactly what we expected him to. And if you want to break down kind of the components that goes into this 6.9 expected wins, so Washington had the 27th ranked quarterback grade last year out of the out of the 32 teams. So that was a reason for you know the, the expected wins to be low, you know, on considering like the, the average being around like 8.5 now that we have a 17 game schedule. Um, but you know, the, the other interesting thing was Washington had the fourth best pass blocking grade last year and the, um, seventh best run blocking grade and the 11th best pass rush. So some of the other tier one and tier two metrics, they were really high in. So that's kind of what balanced out, you know, the really low quarterback grade and the really low coverage grade that that Washington received last year. 
So you just pointed something out that I think is quite key. Most people listening, I think by now, are aware that Washington's offensive line last season graded out as being one of the best in the NFL. That's per a variety of metrics. But that Washington's pass rush last season was as good as you just made mention of. I think that that surprises at least some people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, like, you know, even though Chase Young wasn't wasn't there for most of the year, Jonathan Allen was one of PFF's best pass rushers last year. And so and so that really was able to help. Um, and then, you know, when Chase Young did play, he played pretty well as well. And Montez Sweat also also was able to contribute there, too. So, yeah, it wasn't as good as it was in 2020, but it was still pretty good relative to the rest of the league. Okay, so Ron Rivera in 2021 did about what you would expect given his roster and given the injuries incurred by the roster. Uh, What about in 2020? Uh, His first season as Washington head coach, the team went 7-9 in a very weak NFC East, facing a very weak schedule, uh, won the division. Uh, What does PFF's wins over expected coaching tell us about the job that Ron did in the 2020 season? Yeah, in the 2020 season, he was expected to win 7.5 games and he won seven. So he did a little bit worse than what was expected to. But, you know, the 2020 season, we saw a lot of weird variance in wins over expected coaching because of all the COVID stuff that was happening. Um, you know, with it was it was tougher to onboard rookies that year and everything. But if we want to break down at that season as well. So, you know, he had the 25th highest uh, quarterback ranking again that year. So, you know, very, very low in the passing department. Um, but then again, like some of the stuff that was good, uh, that really matters, like third best pass blocking grade, um, sixth best coverage grade, and fifth best pass rushing grade was were all things that, you know, gave Ron Rivera an opportunity to take advantage of that weak division, as you mentioned. Okay, so we're getting a true objective evaluation of the job that Ron Rivera has done as Washington head coach. 2020, he did slightly less than what he should have done. 2021, he did slightly more than what he should have done. Uh, What about Ron's time as Carolina Panthers head coach? Uh, He was their head coach from January 2011 to December 2019. Was there a general trend for Ron as Panthers head coach when viewed through this prism of pro football focuses wins over expected coaching. Yeah, no, it, it, it does seem like he's about an average to above average coach um, when you combine his time in Carolina with his time in Washington so far. You know, his his uh, best season would be the 2015 season where they went 15-1, and one, and he got four wins over expected coaching there, which was one of the best seasons uh, in the history of this metric since PFF has been grading players since 2006. But, you know, the, the rest of the way he, he does about what he's uh, given, you know, with, with the roster. So if you give him a pretty good roster that, you know, you can expect 9, 10 wins out of, he should be able to get that for you because he does – he does, you know, I don't know if necessarily he's using like analytical models or advanced models when, when he's making these decisions, but he really does gain an edge in fourth down decisions and, you know, has been top five both years in going for it on fourth down when, you know, he's it's recommended to uh, based on win probability. So, you know, that's that's something where he's shown he can be, you know, a, a good a good coach there and a good evaluator when it when it comes to those decisions. We're talking Ron Rivera with Pro Football Focus's Tage Seth, who has developed a groundbreaking metric for evaluating NFL head coaches' wins over expected coaching. So good to hear what you just said, that Ron Rivera as Washington head coach has done a good job with his fourth down decision making. 
Yeah, so, you know, like, only behind the the Packers, Colts, and and Browns over the past two years, he's been, you know, fourth right there with with uh, going for it when he should on fourth down. So it definitely helps to to have that on his side when, you know, when you're you're taking these types of rosters and trying to maximize your wins with them. What else do you look at when it comes to trying to figure out if an NFL head coach is good at maximizing his roster? Yeah, so so fourth downs is is you know one of the things we look at because it's it's easy to evaluate. Um, another thing that I like to look at is you know playing to the strengths of your team, right? So you know we see that like a, a team that is you know is has a has a really good passing attack, like the Bills or the Chiefs. You know, being able to you know pass on early downs a lot and not putting yourself behind the sticks is something that you know I, I often look at when I'm evaluating coaches. And that's why I've been lower on someone like Pete Carroll these past couple of years um, since the Legion of Boom has kind of ended there in Seattle is because he had a top five passing attack by efficiency every year. But, you know, he, he really wanted to run the ball a lot on early downs and it, it kind of, you know, hamstrung the Seahawks offense a little bit. So, you know, R- Rivera, you know, with the, with the pass rates, he's, you know, he's, he's about average there in the league, which is fine because the quarterbacking hasn't been great in Washington. So, so you know, you, you would have to see him with a better quarterback to get, you know, a better sense of that. Getting away from Ron Rivera, is there something particularly surprising or insightful that wins over expected coaching has revealed about an NFL head coach? Yeah, so one of one of the most interesting things that I've found throughout, you know, looking over the wins over expected coaching is that these past couple of years, Bill Belichick has lost his edge over the league. So, you know, if you see like the the you know the the ways of the New England dynasty, because we can go all the way back to two thousand six, every single year Belichick was consistently getting, you know, two wins over what an average coach would get with those rosters. And these past couple of years He's been about average, and then last year he was even below average for the first time in his whole career. So I think that's been really interesting to follow as, you know, the league has maybe caught up to, you know, his ways or, you know, he's, he's had a couple, like, unlucky breaks with, you know, the way, the way like, the 2020 season went for him um, and, and just different stuff like that. And I've, I thought that's been really interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. So Bill Belichick, like Rod Rivera, has major say-so in his team's player personnel. Is there a way to quantify player personnel? Is there an analytical means of trying to figure out how good a team is when it comes to all that is under the umbrella of player personnel, the NFL draft, free agency, or is that just too difficult of a thing to quantify? Yeah, so so I, I did try to do something with this um, last year where I tried to take I, if a, if a new regime comes in and takes over a roster, you know, if if we compare their roster to other rosters that are keeping the same regime, what does that usually look like for the ones that kept the same ones? And then what did this new regime do? So, like a, a really good example of that is like the Colts, uh, where where Carson Wentz is coming from now. So, like when when Ballard and Reich took over that that roster, you know, is kind of in flux, like. They, they haven't been doing that well 
Um, you know, with, with the Andrew Luck, like surprise retirement, you know, they were, they were, um, scrambling there and stuff like that. And they've been able to hold it together a lot better than other teams that lose their starting quarterback and, you know, kind of go into a rebuilding phase. The Colts didn't really have to do much rebuilding. Like they were able to compete with rivers in 2020 and then with Wentz last year. So like, that's, that's something that I've, I've played around with a little bit, but it's, it's really difficult at the, uh, at the pro level to do that. If you don't mind, I want to ask you about a few other things beyond pro football focuses, wins over expected coaching. So a few weeks ago, you wrote about the quarterback class for the 2022 NFL draft, and you wrote about how college completion percentage over expected uh, tells us some things about this 2022 draft quarterback class. Uh, The commanders took Sam Howell in the fifth round of the 2022 draft. What does college completion percentage over expected tell us about the 2022 quarterback class and in particular, if anything, Sam Howell? Yeah, so, so you know, we heard all offseason, or all draft cycle, basically, about how this quarterback class is a lot weaker than we, what we usually see. And completion percentage over expected uh, told that same story, basically. So, you know, if you, if you took the top five quarterbacks of each draft class, since 2014, when PFF started tracking college data, you could see that this quarterback class was, on average, the least accurate of every single draft class uh, in that time frame. So, so that definitely showed up there. And so, like the interesting thing about Sam Howell was, every quarterback uh, except Kenny Pickett in this class was better in 2020 than they were in 2021, and that was especially true with Sam Howell, right? So, Sam Howell had a uh, plus five percent completion percentage over expected in 2020, um, and then regressed this past year and was only a plus two percent. And so you don't like to see that when you're drafting a quarterback. Um, you know, you don't like to see them getting worse as they gain experience. But taking someone in the fifth round that was talked about as a first round prospect, you know, this time a year ago, is a really good value for Washington because. You know, fifth rounders don't contribute that much anyways, right? Like if Sam Howell is a competent backup that can come in and be like, you know, the 25th best starter in the league for just a couple of games if they need him to, like you're getting good value off of that because like you're getting a, a above replacement level quarterback. So I really like the decision from Washington to take someone who's, who's obviously talented there. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I was a big fan of the commanders taking Sam Howell in the fifth round of the 2022 draft. The value is undeniable. When it comes to the commander's quarterback situation and the team having traded for Carson Wentz, uh, there are a lot of opinions out there about Carson Wentz as a quarterback, never mind uh, as a teammate, but just focusing on him as a quarterback. Do you think that this has at least a decent chance of working for the commanders, Carson Wentz? as a team starting quarterback, or do you have major concerns like a lot of other people do? Yeah, so so my thing about Carson Wentz is he is a high-variance player, and I think that's what you kind of have to chase if you don't have an elite quarterback, is you have to get someone with a range of outcomes that could potentially play like a top-five quarterback a couple games in a row that can get you to, you know, maybe a Super Bowl, right? And so we saw that this past year with... Uh, Matthew Stafford, who I don't consider an elite quarterback, but I consider someone that has a lot of variance attached to him. And, you know, we saw that throughout the year he had a, you know, he had a streak where he threw a pick six in a row, like three games straight. 
And then in the playoffs, he was lights out. He gave that, you know, very wide right tail of outcome of really good outcomes. And Carson Wentz, even though he's not as good as Stafford, he's the same way where, you know, he can play really well for stretches. And he did last year for the Colts. And, you know, especially in that Cardinals game on Christmas where they didn't have a running game because a lot of their offensive line was out. Wentz won that game on his own for the Colts, right? So, like, he has the ability to do that. You're just going to have to deal with, you know, something like him playing the Jaguars in the last week of the season last year where his footwork is going to get all messed up and he's going to throw some bad interceptions and, and just stuff like that. And one more for you. You months ago wrote about NFL running backs and what's true and what isn't true about running back regression. Uh, For years now, there have been these widely held beliefs about running backs and how many carries lead to NFL running backs regressing and the age at which an NFL running back should be expected to regress. You utilize Pro Football Focus's rushing yards over expected to do a deep dive on running back regression. What did your research reveal? Yeah, so so most of it was just, you know, fact checking based on the new the new method that we had to to evaluate running backs. Something that I thought was interesting though that I found was, you know, we we often hear this and it might be more fantasy related than than um, you know, actual football, but people say, oh, they had a they had a big workload in college. I don't know if I trust them running in the NFL. They already might be banged up or they already might be going towards regression. I didn't find that to be the case at all. Like, you know, we saw a lot of running backs that had a big workload in college, like a Nick Chubb or a Jonathan Taylor, do just fine in the NFL. So I, I thought that was a, something really interesting that um, kind of changed the way I, I thought about running backs coming out of college where I didn't really have to consider that their their college um, amount of carries like like actually had a lot of weight in how the, how well they would play. That is interesting, and that does go against what I think a lot of us do think. Uh, Tage Seth of Pro Football Focus, excellent work in developing PFF's wins over expected coaching. Has done a lot of other great work for PFF as well. Uh, all the best to you, man. Thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. This was this was um, really fun to come on and, and talk with you. It was, it was really nice to, to do this. And yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to follow Washington this year. Yes, following Washington is always interesting for many different reasons. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, man. All the best to you. Mm-hmm. You too. All right, good stuff from Tate Seth of Pro Football Focus. Up next, I'm talking Nationals. Uh, they lost on Tuesday night due in no small part to their uh, sloppiness, but Patrick Corbin on Tuesday night was good for a third consecutive start. That is encouraging. I'll get to that and much more after this. Well, it is hard to remember a time in which grocery shopping was as unappealing as it is right now, right? Prices at stores are ridiculous due to inflation. Just driving to the store is costly because of the cost of gas. And you're super busy. I mean, who even has time to go food shopping, let alone to think about what to make on a daily basis? And so all of this is why you should try HelloFresh. HelloFresh is great. With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your home 
and at an affordable price. And not only do the ingredients come pre-portioned so that you're not overbuying or wasting food, but it's easier than ever to get filling meals on your kitchen table quickly with options like family-friendly and quick and easy recipes. Stop wasting your time worrying about when you're going to buy food and what you're going to buy and what you should make and what the kids will eat and how much the food will cost and try HelloFresh. We've tried HelloFresh and we love it. Uh, We have had sweet chili pork and cabbage stir fry, Monterey Jack unfried chicken, pub style shepherd's pie, saucy pork burrito bowls, Italian chicken, Southwest beef with pasta. The meals are fun, creative, healthy, and delicious. And the ultimate endorsement is this. My four-year-old son eats HelloFresh. And trust me, he is a picky eater. Him deeming something worthy of being eaten is like, you know, the white smoke coming out of the Vatican when a new pope is elected. He eats HelloFresh. He loves it. You will too. Uh, Also, HelloFresh will work with you. You can pick your favorite meals from 50 different weekly options. You can customize meals. You can skip weeks when needed. You can change your delivery date all on the HelloFresh app. So here's what to do. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Galdi16. Use the code Galdi16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. Yeah, this is a great deal. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Galdi16. Use the code Galdi16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. One more time, HelloFresh.com slash Galdi16. Use the code Galdi16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com
Well, we know that the Nationals are a rebuilding team and are not a good team, not right now. And so the last thing that the Nats this season need to be is sloppy. Uh, But sloppy the Nats were on Tuesday night in a 4-2 loss to the New York Mets in Nationals Park in Game 1 of a three-game series. The Nats this season now are 10-21, and including being just 3-12 and at home. Yeah, 3-12 and is the Nats' record at Nationals Park. The Nats are 7-9 and on the road and a putrid 3-12 and at home. Uh, major sloppiness by the Nats on Tuesday night. The Nats committed two errors. The Nats failed to make another defensive play that wasn't an error but resulted in two runs scoring. And the Nats had two runners thrown out on the base paths, including one at home plate. And all of these things came together to take away from what was a third consecutive good start for Patrick Corbin. Now, I am not going to say that Patrick Corbin has been fixed. Uh, We still need to see a lot more before we can say that Patrick Corbin has been fixed. Before we can say, as was said in the great movie Office Space, that the glitch has been fixed. We fixed the glitch. Yes, we fixed the glitch. We haven't yet arrived at the point at which we can say that we have fixed the glitch of Patrick Corbin, but Patrick Corbin has been better now over his last three starts. Uh, Corbin on Tuesday night tossed five scoreless innings with five strikeouts. Uh, You take that with O'Corby, given his massive struggles over the last few seasons. Uh, Now, Corbin on Tuesday night did issue four walks, but he gave up just three hits, all of which were singles. He threw 51 strikes versus 35 balls on 86 pitches. Now, Corbin had just one clean inning, which was the top of the first. He then spent the rest of the outing being an escape artist, okay? He was like Chris Angel at the 2022 NFL Draft. But Corbin did escape. Uh, He tossed a scoreless top of the second, despite issuing a leadoff four-pitch walk of Pete Alonso. Corbin tossed a scoreless top of the third, despite giving up a two-out full-count single to James McCann, despite him having been down to the count at 1.02, and then giving up a two-out first-pitch single to Brandon Nimmo. Corbin tossed a scoreless top of the fourth, despite giving up a leadoff single to Francisco Lindor, who then stole second base, and despite issuing a five-pitch walk of Pete Alonso. Corbin tossed a scoreless top of the fifth, despite issuing a leadoff seven-pitch walk of Jeff McNeil, despite him having been down to the count at 1.12, and then issuing a one-out six-pitch walk of Brandon Nimmo. So a lot of walks, yes, but ultimately, run prevention. Five scoreless innings. Nats manager Davey Martinez during his post-game press conference on Tuesday night on taking Patrick Corbin out after five innings. Yeah, no, I talked to Corbin after the fifth inning. Man, he had a lot of High leverage uh, innings there. Got out a lot of a lot of jams, and, and he threw the ball well. He just you know he walked a lot of guys. Um, talked to him in the fifth inning, and uh, you know he, he was honest. He said he got he got a little fatigued, and reason being he threw four, you know 85 pitches in, in five innings, and like I said he worked through a lot of uh, different situations. But overall, I thought you know forget about the walks, man. His slider was good again. You know his two seam was good again. So. Um, I think he, I think he's in a good spot, you know. So um, that's good. You know, he's he's had a lot of work over the last three starts. You know, 90, 94, and uh, today was 85 and five. So um, you know, hopefully, in the next five days, comes out and he gets a little rest here. And the next five days, comes out and he, he he keeps us in the game like he did today. 
Yeah, hopefully. Uh, so Patrick Corbin on Tuesday night put on plenty of base runners, but he gave up no runs, and he now has been good in each of his last three starts. He had that horrendous start in the 7-1 loss to the San Francisco Giants at Nationals Park on April 22nd. Seven runs in one and two-thirds innings. But Corbin, since that outing, a 3-2 loss to the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park on April 28th. Corbin, in that game, three runs, two earned in six innings. He was even better than that final line indicated. Corbin recorded eight strikeouts. And then Corbin, in the 5-2 loss at the Colorado Rockies, Last Wednesday night, May 4th, became the first Nats starting pitcher this season to toss a complete game. Uh, He did allow five runs, but only three of the five runs were earned. He lasted for eight innings. He gave up nine hits, a triple, two doubles, and six singles, but he issued no walks. He recorded three strikeouts, and he over 94 pitches threw 70 strikes versus just 24 balls. He retired 12 of the final 13 batters he faced. And now we have what Corbin did on Tuesday night in this 4-2 loss to the Mets at Nationals Park. Now, another component of Patrick Corbin's outing was his catcher, Riley Adams. Uh, Riley Adams pretty clearly has become Patrick Corbin's personal catcher. The Nats' number one catcher, of course, is K-Bear Ruiz. But for now, Riley Adams is Corbin's personal catcher. Uh, Adams on Tuesday night, was an ad starting catcher and number eight batter as he served as Corbin's catcher for a fourth time in five Corbin starts. I mean, that to me is a personal catcher. Uh, Adams went one for three with a solo homer. Uh, Adams in the Nats one run fifth had a one out full count solo homer to left field for a two nothing Nats lead despite having been down to the count at one point. Oh, two. But as for Adams being Corbin's personal catcher, this was Davey Martinez during his post-game press conference on Tuesday night. Yeah, it's good. It's good. I mean, I, you know, I love you know, what they're doing. And, uh, you know, Raleigh's really uh, has taken charge, you know, with him. And, and talk, you know, like I see them both on the bench again, talking through some some different uh, sequences, some different uh, different pitches, uh, what they wanted, how they want to attack uh, certain hitters uh, the next time through. So um, they're working good together. And I like it. Yeah, for whatever reason, there's a good chemistry between Patrick Corbin and Riley Adams. Uh, But Tuesday night's game was a loss for the Nats. So the Nats on Tuesday afternoon made multiple roster moves regarding the bullpen. Uh, The Nats on Tuesday afternoon selected the contract of former Chicago Cubs reliever Coral Edwards Jr. from AAA Rochester, optioned reliever Andres Machado to Rochester, and transferred reliever Mason Thompson to the 60-day injured list. So this Mason Thompson injury situation does not appear to be trending well. The Nats on April 10th placed Thompson on the 10-day injured list with a right bicep strain. It's funny that the Nats now are playing the Mets because Thompson in a 5-0 loss to the Mets at Nationals Park on April 9th in the top of the 8th threw three pitches. He, after his third pitch, which was way off, was shaking his right arm. It was a frightening scene. He then immediately got taken out of the game and he has been out ever since. But Coral Edwards Jr., uh, not the NASCAR driver who does the backflips. No, Coral Edwards Jr., the reliever. Uh, former Cub, like I said, he had been outstanding at AAA Rochester in the 2022 season. 14 and a third innings, ERA of 0.63, 17 strikeouts versus four walks. Uh, well, Edwards on Tuesday night was thrown right into the fire. Uh, he made his Nats Major League debut, but uh, it did not go so well. Uh, Edwards in the top of the sixth 
gave up three runs uh, as he gave up a leadoff opposite field single to Pete Alonso to right field on a 1-2 pitch. Edwards gave up a single to J.D. Davis up the middle on an 0-2 pitch. Edwards issued a one-out six-pitch walk of Eduardo Escobar to load the bases. Edwards gave up a one-out game-tying bases-loaded two-run double to Jeff McDeal on a grounder that went past the Nats' first baseman, Josh Bell, who failed to make a backhanded stab of the grounder. Now, look, the grounder was a well-struck grounder, so this was not an easy play for Bell to make, but this was a play that, to me, you'd like for your first baseman to make. Bell did not make the play. He was not charged with an error, nor should he have been charged with an error. But again, that's a play that you'd like for your first baseman to make. Bell did not make the play. The result ended up being a game-tying two-run double to tie the game at two. And then Edwards gave up a one-out RBI sack fly to James McCann for a 3-2 Mets lead. So we in that Mets three-run six had a defensive play that could have been made by Josh Bell, but wasn't. Steve Ciszek tossed a scoreless top of the seventh. Orasmo Ramirez tossed a scoreless top of the eighth, but Ramirez in the top of the ninth gave up an unearned run. Uh, the run was unearned thanks to a throwing error by third baseman Michael Franco. Uh, Franco in that Mets one-run ninth committed a throwing error on a leadoff grounder by Mark Canna. Now, Franco did come through as a batter. Uh, Franco, as the Nats' number six batter, went one for three with an RBI double, uh, he and the Nats, one run fourth, had a two-out opposite field RBI double to the right center field gap for a one nothing Nats lead. But on that RBI double was Yadiel Hernandez getting thrown out by a mile at home for the third out. Uh, Yadiel on Tuesday night as the Nats starting left fielder, a number five batter, 0 for 4. He and that Nats, one run fourth, reached base via a force out, but he then got thrown out by a mile at home for the third out. You know, that has happened way too often this Nats season, a base runner getting thrown out by a mile at a base, especially home plate. Uh, The Nats have had way too many base runners thrown out on the base pads this season. And speaking of that, D-Strange Gordon. So he on Tuesday night was an at-starting shortstop and number seven batter as Alcides Escobar is dealing with a finger problem. Uh, Strange Gordon won for three with a bunt single, and he committed it an error. Uh, Strange Gordon in the top of the seventh committed a throwing error on a leadoff grounder by Mark Canna on an 0-2 pitch from reliever Steve Ciszek. But Strange Gordon in the bottom of the seventh had a two-out bunt single on a great bunt toward third base. That was good, but he then got thrown out, trying to steal second base for the third out. Way too much sloppiness for the Nats on Tuesday night. How about this? The Nats this season now are 0-14 in games in which the team commits at least one error. 0-14, okay? Now, errors are not the best measurement of defense, okay? But still, 0-14 in games in which the team commits at least one error. Uh, David Martinez, during his postgame press conference on Tuesday night, on the Nats defense. No, no, we're, we're taking ground balls every day. I mean, that's that, that's that's the focus of, of who we are. We're taking ground balls. Um, some of these some of these errors that we're making are, are just you know uh, you know uh, brutally honest kind of lazy mistakes. You know, not moving their feet. Um, you know, and it's all you know. It's basically the throwing errors. You know, so. We got to, you know, we got to continue to talk to them. We got to continue to move our feet, finish the play. You know, half the play is catching the ball. The other half is, is throwing the ball. So we just got to, we got to finish the play all the way through. And, 
But I think these guys are cap- more capable of doing that. Look, these are veteran guys. It's not, we're not talking about uh, guys, you know, rookie guys. That you know, these are guys that have done it. Um, so we, I mean, we got we got to talk through it. We got to get them to move their feet. You know, every time the ball's hit to them, they won't anticipate the ball being hit to them one. And when the ball's hit to them, they got to finish the play. Yes, they do. Uh, Offensively, the Nats on Tuesday night were, again, not too good. Uh, Just two runs, just eight hits, just one walk. The Nats went one for two with runners in scoring position. Just two at-bats with runners in scoring position the entire game. Cesar Hernandez as the Nats starting second baseman and number one batter went 0 for 4 with three strikeouts. You know, Hernandez this season does have some hits. He is batting 271, but he has an on-base percentage of just 307, way too low for a number one batter in a lineup. Uh, Juan Soto on Tuesday night as the Nats starting right fielder and number two batter, one for four with a single. Uh, Soto in the bottom of the six had a leadoff opposite field single through the left side of the infield on a 1-2 pitch, but Soto now over his last four games is a mere three for 17 with three singles and one walk. Uh, Josh Bell on Tuesday night as an at starting first baseman and number three batter, two for four with two singles. Nelson Cruz on Tuesday night as an at starting DH and number four batter, two for four with two singles. But otherwise, just not a lot happening offensively for the Nats uh, in this game beyond that Riley Adams solo home run and the Michael Franco RBI double on which Yadiel Hernandez got thrown out by quite a bit at home plate. Game two for the Nats against the Mets at Nationals Park is on Wednesday night at 7.05. Aaron Sanchez will oppose Tyler McGill. Well, when talking Orioles lately, I have spent a good bit of time praising the Orioles starting pitching, and justifiably so. The Orioles starting pitching, shockingly, has been really good. And this is with the Orioles' best starting pitcher, John Means, out for the rest of the season due to Tommy John surgery that he underwent on April 27th. Well, we on Tuesday night got the best and really the most encouraging outing yet from an Orioles starting pitcher this season. Uh, First of all, another win for the O's on Tuesday night. A 5-3 win at the St. Louis Cardinals in Game 1 of a three-game series in Game 1 of a six-game road trip. As the O's, Joe Angel, again, were in the win column. And the Orioles, again, in the win column. Yes, Joe, the win column. The win column is becoming a familiar place for the O's. Uh, The O's have won three consecutive games and five of the team's last six games. The O's this season now are 13 and 17. But the Orioles starting pitcher on Tuesday night was Kyle Bradish. He made his third major league start and he was outstanding. Bradish on Tuesday night, two runs in seven innings, 11 strikeouts versus no walks. I mean, that is tremendous, especially by today's starting pitching standards. Two runs in seven innings, 11 strikeouts versus no walks. Kyle Bradish on Tuesday night pitched like an ace, okay? He pitched like a number one pitcher in a quality rotation. Can't say enough about how good he was. He gave up just four hits, a homer, a double, and two singles. He threw 64 strikes versus just 26 balls over 90 pitches. O's manager Brandon Hyde during his postgame session with reporters on Tuesday night on Kyle Bradish. Wow. Very impressed. Um, 
you know, 94 to 97 with a little bit of cut. Good curveball, great slider tonight. Kept guys off balance, good change-ups to left-handers. I was just so impressed after the... You know, the inside of the park, Homer, we have a lead. Things kind of unravel there. The crowd's into it, and he, go, and he goes out and he punches out three um, following, and then goes out and has a great seventh inning as well. So, uh, had really good stuff, and that's a good lineup, and, and uh, threw the ball great. Yes, he did. Uh, the O's on April 29th recalled Kyle Bradish from AAA Norfolk, for which he had been terrific this season. Uh, Bradish over three starts for AAA Norfolk this season. ERA of 120, whip of 0.73, strikeouts per nine innings of 10.2. Bradish was good in his Major League debut. He had a 3-1 loss to the Boston Red Sox at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on April 29th in his Major League debut, allowed three runs, two earned in six innings. Now, Bradish in that game in the top of the second Allowed three runs, but he then retired 13 of the final 14 batters he faced. Uh, then came Bradish's second major league start. He had a 9-4 win over the Minnesota Twins at Oriole Park at Camden Yards last Wednesday night, May 4th. Allowed four runs in four innings, but Bradish began his outing by tossing three scoreless innings. He did then allow four runs in the top of the fourth. He gave up a two-run homer to twin shortstop Carlos Correa on a 1-2 pitch, issued two walks and a hit-by-pitch, and gave up three singles. So yes, he did fall apart in that top of the fourth inning. And Bradish, over his four innings, threw just 38 strikes versus 32 balls on 70 pitches. But he bounced back big time on Tuesday night. Uh, This is Kyle Bradish's age 25 season. He was taken by the Los Angeles Angels in the fourth round of the 2018 MLB draft out of New Mexico State. He was the key piece acquired by the O's in the Dylan Bundy trade of December 2019. Bradish was the centerpiece of the trade package that the O's got back from the Angels for starter Dylan Bundy. Uh, more from Brandon Hyde during his postgame session with reporters on Tuesday night on Kyle Bradish. Got major league starter stuff. It's really good. I mean, it's it's. Um, and I was a little bit nervous early. I felt like there was a lot of a lot of deep counts, a lot of waste pitches, a lot of ball out of hand early, and then after like the second or third, not too many bad misses. Um, like like I said, the slider was, you know. Uh, plus, plus tonight. And then it's 94-97 with cut. So it's a really tough at bat, righty and lefty, when he's in the strike zone. Robbie guiding him the way, you know, like a veteran did all the way through. Outstanding. Um, so tough pitch, to, tough place to pitch and put tough environment and, and answer the bell. The O's have been starving for quality starting pitching for years. If Kyle Bradish is a hit, and that remains an if, okay? But if Bradish is a hit, that is so big for the O's, especially considering that they have two even more well-regarded pitching prospects in Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall. The O's this season remarkably now have a starting pitching ERA of 375. Uh, The Orioles' bullpen on Tuesday night was without its ace reliever, Jorge Lopez. Uh, The O's on Tuesday placed Lopez on the bereavement list due to the death of a grandfather. Uh, Three Orioles relievers on Tuesday night, Joey Crable, Dylan Tate, and Felix Batista, 
combined to allow one run in two innings. Big games for Cedric Mullins and Anthony Santander on Tuesday night. Uh, Mullins, as the Orioles starting center fielder and number one batter, had four hits, so one out first pitch, two-run homer in the top of the third and three singles. He also had a stolen base. You know, Mullins finally is getting going here this season. His OPS for the season is up to 795. Santander, as the Orioles starting left fielder and number three batter, had three hits. So went at RBI double in the top of the fifth and two singles. Game two for the O's at the Cardinals is on Wednesday night at 745. Spencer Watkins will be the Orioles starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Thursday show, episode 313, will feature much more on the Commanders. I will post game, game five for the Capitals in their first round series against the Florida Panthers. Game five at Florida, Wednesday night at 7.30 with the Caps looking to take a 3-2 series lead, and I'll talk Nationals and Orioles. Uh, game two for the Nats against the New York Mets at Nationals Park will be on Wednesday night at 7.05. Game two for the O's at the St. Louis Cardinals will be on Wednesday night at 7.45. Have a great rest of your Wednesday, and I'll talk to you on Thursday. We fixed the glitch.